Three is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Repodcast the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. Resisting the impulse of fear of the unknown. Uh, and I think embracing the mystery of that other person and their expression and experience of humanity. And when you get into that space, I think that's when the magic happens. When you were a kid, did you ever imagine how you'd use three wishes if you could wish for anything you wanted? Many of us would blow our first two wishes on things to do with possessions and food and by the third choice, find ourselves trying to balance the scales by a wish for world peace or wishing for unlimited future wishes, if we're honest. Today we're talking about how peace, real, robust, and realistic peace, usually comes through very disruptive moments, even humbling conversations and a willingness for changes in our own perspective. In other words, peacemaking doesn't usually feel peaceful at all. In our conversation with Chris Lynchon, he effectually disrupts our naive view of where we find peace. For all our wishing, the real peace promoter recognizes that restoring relationship and evaluating systemic injustice might trump any naive longing for, can't we just all get along? We hope for you that this cast on peace will be a very disruptive time. Well, hey, Chris, thanks for being here today. Um, Today, we're wrestling with how we can be peacemakers in culture, a society, a system that sometimes perpetuates violence, whether we kind of see it or not. And you're going to help guide us through what that means for us. So just to kind of get things going, Chris, I'd love to hear a bit of a bio. So whatever is important to you to mention, we'd kind of we'd love to hear it. So take it away. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, So Chris Lynchon, I work for Abbotsford Restorative Justice and Advocacy Association as the Community Restorative Practice Coordinator. And so uh, that's a pretty long job title to to basically describe. Uh, I look for ways to embed restorative values into our community. And, uh, And so that work has been really jazzing me up the last year and a bit. Uh, and uh, I guess other important things about me, I'm married, Katrina, wonderful wife, uh, Asher, he's 11, he loves basketball, Declan, seven, he draws Godzilla posters all day, which is, which is great, and so we're talking about peacemaking, but my son himself is drawing pictures of Godzilla, absolutely brutalizing poor people in his pictures, uh, and then there's Ayla, she's two and a half, and, uh, and she's great. I'm a sucker. She can have anything she wants. I've already bought her a Corvette, it feels like, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's good work. Uh, family life is good. I mean, the pandemic certainly illuminates a lot of stuff, especially the things that we're going to be talking about today. And so, uh, so thinking about you know, family and my work and COVID and restrictions and all those things. It's, it's an interesting backdrop, I think, for this conversation. So, and you're also in school. We also yes. Yeah. Great. Uh, master's student at uh, Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia. So doing some remote learning that way and uh, learning from some pretty amazing people and classmates from all over the world, which, uh, which has been really, really important for me. Oh, we're really glad to have you and looking forward to hearing 
a little bit more about all those things, especially the Godzilla posters. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, one of the things we often do when we're asking people that are often talking about uh, a topic that our community is wrestling with or hearing more about or, or wanting to have deeper nuance, I guess, in our understanding, is a posture that we can approach it from. And being that we're called the re-podcast, we try to uh, rein you in a bit and, and see if you can pick a re-word for us, which uh, given the, what's going on in our world, just don't pick restriction, okay? <laughs> because that's one that I'm sick of hearing today. But do you have a re-word that you think would be um, fitting for what we're talking about today? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, for me, the, the posture to approach any kind of conversation around peace building or bringing people together or looking for creative ways to to instill peace and, and justice into a world, it's it's restorative. It's just kind of sitting right there working in restorative justice, uh, an emerging field in, in many ways. Uh, I mean, the posture of restorative justice is is looking at human dignity and people and relationships and relationships to each other uh, and systems of you know societal organization and uh, and I think uh, for for me the the definition that my professor Dr. Johanna Turner offers in one of her classes uh, reads like this: a restorative justice is a philosophy is philosophy that emphasizes healing and accountability to repair harm and wrongdoing, build community and strengthen relationships. And, uh, and so for, for a reword, it's gotta be restorative. Yeah, and like you said, it was kind of sitting right there, easy pickings. Um, okay, so uh, humor me here, but let's say your six-year-old asks you what restorative justice is. How would you describe it like to someone who has that level of understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and so restorative justice certainly isn't in the common, uh, common understanding around justice, I think. So when people think of justice, they think of the traditional justice system. And so bringing in people into the court system, you know, that type of, that type of thing. Uh, but when I try to explain anyway, uh, the idea of restorative justice to my Godzilla drawing son, for example, uh, it, I really focus in on how people relate to one another in the midst of extreme complexity around injustice. And so that's probably not the words exactly I would use for my six-year-old, but, but imagine people being bonded together through, through a harm or an injustice. Restorative justice asks the question and asks the practical, explores the practical way of bringing people together who've experienced something together, an injustice that's bonded them together, to figure out how do we make this right? And so we could say that in my house, I do little restorative justice conferences with my kids when, when they're fighting, you know, how you, if somebody feels hurt, well, why does that person, why do you feel hurt, what happened? And so how would you like to respond to that, Asher or, or Declan or whoever? And, and bringing, bringing people together in a safe way to talk about something that was really, really difficult is, is really a, a heartbeat part of what restorative justice is. So Chris, you're, you've mentioned a couple times your work addresses injustice. I'm just wondering if you could maybe explain that a bit to us maybe give us a bigger picture of what injustice actually looks like? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think one of the things that's really important to put on a public podcast like this uh, is in terms of myself being a white male, uh, I don't have the full scope, I think, of injustice, particularly if we are talking about systems. And so uh, when, we, when we embark into this really important conversation around injustice uh it's i'm coming to it from a very privileged position of being a white guy in in north america and so uh, injustice isn't something that i have uh encountered in in some ways and so um so injustice and i, I think i think f for me i see pictures when i think about injustice and so 
Uh, so injustice could be you know, stealing a candy bar. You know, that homeowner experiences a loss. Or, sorry, or that store owner, rather, experiences a loss of something. And so uh, in, in, a, in a purist type of restorative justice conference where you bring, in our world, we call it victim-offender conferencing or harm-doer harm conference, uh, there's an issue or thing that brings people together. Uh, the, the encounter, you know, works through the depths of that experience. And so on the surface level, it's a, it's a stolen candy bar, uh, but if you dig deeper for the, for the, home, for the store owner, uh, that person is losing income or, or something else of, of value. Uh, but it doesn't just kind of start there. There's injustice kind of all over the place. You can talk about criminal activity as a form of injustice where there's uh, an act of violence upon somebody, which is, uh, which is visible. You call the police and the police come and you get kind of put in the criminal justice system, for example. Um, but in my world, which I'm more familiar with, uh, in, you can see injustice, you know, uh, in the person that's experiencing some kind of oppression. Uh, you can see injustice in, you know, the, the face of somebody who is addicted to opioids or, or alcohol. Uh, you can see injustice in, in the way that, you know, the healthcare system addresses and works with, you know, minorities. Uh, you know, we see the reports, you know, we see that in BC. Um, and you can see injustice in, uh, like I remember going to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Vancouver, and I sat in a chair uh, watching a, and listening to a circle where there was a gentleman in the center of the circle talking about their experience in residential schools. And, um, and I remember the mic was getting passed around and then it got to this one gentleman and he just started weeping. I don't think I'd ever heard anybody cry that desperately before. And he was talking about how he was raped in, in, in a, a residential school. And I remember sitting and reflecting on that experience. And they were black chairs, I remember. And, and I remember that was such a stunning encounter with injustice because you have a system of oppression where people are being brought into a residential school uh, to, you know, to, to get rid of the you know, quote-unquote Indian in someone. And so, uh, you know, when, you, when, you, when I think about injustice, I don't think about acts of violence, not just acts of violence or theft uh, or, or abuse, but it just, injustice is far bigger than just those actions. And so uh, when you take a look at injustice from a bigger picture perspective, I mean, that's, that's where my mind goes. Yeah, that story is is a gripping one, and yeah, I can imagine that leaves an imprint. And I, you know, I'm thinking about people in my experience that are among the what we would say privileged, that have had horrific experiences as well. And is it a sense? Is it really a system that's to blame for that, or is it just bad luck that this person was in a system? and just happen to be one of the victims of that system, but there's privileged people that are also victims. Like, are you sure that a system contributes to this or is it just kind of luck of the draw? I think it can be all of the above, but I certainly think that the system can contribute to how people relate to one another. And so when, uh, you know, for, for example, um, I work with, in, in my role as a restorative practice coordinator with Arja, I work and facilitate community dialogues around tensions of housing and homelessness. And part of that work has been, you know, sitting with folks who are either currently on the street, uh, street community folks, or people who have experience living, having lived on the street. And you know, one of the things that I've taken away from that conversation is, you know, nobody ever asks them, you know, what they need. And so you've got services and you've got government institutions that, you know, offer services. And sometimes they don't necessarily meet the needs of the people who actually need them. And so you have a system that forces an interaction between the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable in our society, 
and the people who hold all the power to the resources to keep those folks alive even and you know and you can you can think of it in in other terms as well and uh you know services sometimes are just all over the place and so if you don't have a car or a method of transportation how are you going to get from one place to another and so uh and so in terms of how systems can define interactions that's one way that systems define an interaction how society is crafted in a way to create that type of relationship having said that you know that causes tensions or, or whatever but you know life is just tough too and and i think people have have a hard time working through things uh, and, and and not to give uh, excuses for people who have crafted or done violent acts towards others uh, or criminal activity or injustice or whatever, but, you know, uh, sometimes it could be because there is a trauma that hasn't been worked through well. Uh, you know, the, the perspective of restore, I think, postures us in a way that says, why why did this happen you know what is your story and how did we get to this point where this is the thing that happened uh, and being in some spaces it's a harrowing story and it doesn't make what happened right but it gives depth to the human experience to the point you know what's going on how can we how can we restore this moment i'd love to um f follow up like i appreciate how you're helping us understand kind of how pervasive systems can be and how we can be it's almost like culture we don't realize we're part of a culture because it's so um I guess it's just all around us. And so until we're sort of removed from it or uh, spend time attentive, being attentive to the particularities of our culture, that's when we start to see things. Do you have ways where people become aware of systems that they are operating within, with, like giving them sort of a, a sense of how prevalent the system really is? Yeah, and, I, and I'm... Uh, even as we talk, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with the word system, even though I'm the one that brought it up. But um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of community and uh, and the people that we hang out with, you know. And, and I guess there's those, the social media theory about the echo chamber, right, where uh, you're, you're friends with similar people who have similar thoughts and political opinions or, or perspectives on life, and so that ends up being the only thing that you ever hear and see. Uh, one of the things that's really, really cool about my work is that we craft spaces intentionally to bring diverse perspectives together. And so uh, if, if I'm talking with somebody who's wanting to get an understanding of community, of how you know society works, and sometimes it becomes this you know system or form of oppression for vulnerable people. Uh, the way to start understanding how our communities work is to sit and speak with the people who are the most vulnerable, uh, because then you start to really get a sense of what are the cracks, who are the people that our community is failing. And you don't get to that point unless you actually understand and seek to understand those people. I remember talking with an advocate in Abbotsford and a Christian guy, just a great, great, great guy. Um, but I asked him about his, his view on, on faith or Christian, Christianity or whatever. And, uh, and he said, I view Christianity as like this party. And, and you walk into this house and it's a house party and everybody's having a good time. But I think the Christian perspective and the way to be a disciple or Jesus follower is to find the person who's sitting by themselves. Walk up to that person and have that conversation. And I think if we throw faith into this podcast interview, um, that's something that I find to be I've, I actually haven't forgotten that conversation, and, and I think about it often, especially when we start thinking about injustice, because uh, the people who experience 
injustice in our communities are the ones who are often forgotten about by themselves. Yeah, everyone's having fun at the party, except for them, the party's a nightmare. Right. This is the Re-Podcast, and today we are inviting Chris Menchin to speak to us about his work as a practitioner of restorative justice. He's giving us cues as to how we can begin to embody the idea of restorative justice or peacemaking in our own perspectives, relationships, and personal actions. if any you've kind of given us a couple examples already but is there a particular one that kind of um i guess illustrates kind of what you're talking about as far as the injustice presence or the presence of injustice and um, maybe how your work has worked with that is there a particular story that comes to mind for you there's a couple stories that come to mind and uh and so i think the really the one that struck me or the past year was facilitating these community dialogues, restorative community dialogues, we call them. And so we make sure that there's a broad perspective of people, all the way from lived experience folks to you know statutory agencies, so that's government or, or whoever. And, and we're talking about a really difficult moment in the life of a community, which is probably about six, seven, eight blocks long. And... Uh, and people from all across the experience of life in community came together over one particular type of injustice. And, uh, and the act of coming together and crying together and uh, experiencing sadness together was something that surprised me. And... Uh, and, and something that I'm never going to forget because it took a long time to get there, to be honest with you. And and I'm hesitant to give specifics because it's pretty close. But, um, but I think the everybody's got judgments about one another, and I think the the way that our world works, uh, which is a pretty lazy way to say like a, a system or or constructs of you know the structure of how we do life together. Um, I think we have all these influences that shape the way that we view one another. And, and so we could interpret those influences as part of a system because we keep encountering them over and over and over again, very, very systematically. And so the media could be one. Uh, there's, there's a doctor, Edward Said, who has this concept of Orientalism. And so Orientalism, uh, you know, is, is looking at the Middle East and, and so he, he did this book, it's a fairly famous book of, uh, I think in the late 70s. But the idea was that people in North America have caricatured the Middle Eastern person into a very particular type of thing, and that very particular type of caricature. And so, uh, so the way that we view other people is defined by, by a caricature, and you could to apply that same principle to indigenous folks. Uh, I remember a lecture by Adrian, Dr. Adrian Jacobs uh, many years ago at a Nate's conference in, at Wheaton College in Chicago area, and he talked about you know the savage trope. And so he went through all the media articles that put the savage caricature on indigenous people. And so if you can imagine somebody who doesn't think critically about the media portrayals of people in you keep getting these images of, of how of you know indigenous folks as savages and how that could influence the way that you look at other people who are indigenous people uh, you could apply the same thing to to people who live on the street or who are addicted to, to opiates or or, or or really anybody and and it, it takes a lot of work to get through those caricatures that we craft for other people. And so uh, 
uh, and the way that happens is you, you bring people together and you have those honest conversations. Yeah, I like, you know, I know that knee jerk reaction to say, well, we just need to change the caricature, you know, like if we remove certain words from our vocabulary or if we draw something that's a little bit different, then we fix the problem. But it's pretty clear to me that that just changes it to a different caricature. And I'm kind of being a bit cheeky, but um, I'm curious if we're thinking about stepping into systems that are oppressive um, and the, the image of the party kind of, I think, is sticking with me, which I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm curious about what the end goal looks like as far as breaking down caricatures. Uh, what, what is that replaced with um, that's functional? That, uh, like, how do, how do you operate in that new landscape? It's honest. Uh, the thing that strikes me about those moments when people start to deconstruct those caricatures, it gets brutally honest. And, you know, oftentimes in restorative justice or any kind of mediation type, you know, context, you're working through conflict and it takes a while to get from kind of the surface level, you hit me kind of thing to getting to the actual heart of what's going on and, and that can be attached to our judgments of other people and what we think of them and, and that kind of thing. When you can see change in those types of settings is when people begin to be really, really just honest with one another. Uh, so as an example, maybe you're a business owner and you're tired of people coming in and uh, using drugs in your restaurant, for example. Um, and you, you can be very, very honest about how that's impacting you and your business, but you can also show compassion to the person who's using drugs in your space, for example, uh, because you don't know what that scenario is. And then it can become a bigger conversation when you ask, well, is there a safe space for this person to use drugs or not? And if there's not, then, then there's a whole other conversation but you've changed the way that you view the person who is in your restaurant, for example, and vice versa. I think uh, I think people should understand, and what I've learned is that there is impact on business owners and residents who you know, see people who are vulnerable and come face to face with people who are vulnerable and maybe don't know what or how to do or how to act with those folks. And it's the only information that some people have about how to interact with some of our vulnerable folks is through caricatures. And so like if you just keep getting barraged with these cartoonish type ideals of who these vulnerable folks are, that determines and that shapes the way that you interact with them. And so if you flip it and instead of depending on the caricature, you ask the question, what's your name? or how can I help you, or who can I call? You know, that's that changes things a little bit. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that's what you do if, if that's the case, but, but it deconstructs the caricature and it deconstructs the, the images that we have that we use to depend or to pre-prescribe how we work and talk to people. I, something that I'm kind of picking up on here, what I'm thinking you're saying is, is it's helpful or like maybe even a step to take in, in realizing the caricatures we've bought into, maybe unknowingly, but as to in seeing something that is injustice or however you define it, looking at both the person behind whatever's happening, which is something I think I was, you know, in Sunday school, like that was a, something I was feel like I was to told to do. But I think something new for me is like thinking about, okay, what happened in that person's life to bring them to this point? But then also something I haven't thought of is, well, what actually, what in the system is pushing them there too? So it's like things that are happening and then also this other hand that's like coming alongside and pushing, which is something that I haven't thought about really much at all. So that's really sticking out to me. How do you kind of 
for someone like me who, who restorative justice is like a new idea, how do I, how do I not feel overwhelmed and actually like mobilized to participate in restorative practices? You can come volunteer with our organization. Cool. There you go. That's one. But uh, it's it's a good question. I think um, I'd like to see restorative justice as a movement and not a nonprofit agency. And so that means that you know people can hold restorative values in the way that they interact with people. And so that means that you know instead of judgments, maybe you approach somebody with curiosity uh, in, instead of you know, these caricatures, you work to deconstruct or identify the things that maybe you've been taught or that you have experienced in other people. I think you, you explore the person uh, and you understand, seek to understand somebody and not to fear difference, uh, but also hold your own personal dignity even in the midst of disagreement, or even if you experience injustice. And restorative justice doesn't mean that you're just going to you know, forgive somebody for doing something terrible, right? Uh, the, the restorative philosophy, in theory, you know, it's, it can bring you to a point where you can ask the person who caused the injustice, why? Why did you do this? Why did this happen? What's your story? Uh, my wife's my wife's cousin was murdered. In sorry, this, this is a pretty big drop, but uh, she was she was killed in Winnipeg, and uh, and Cliff and Wilma Dirksen, uh, her the daughter's name was Candice, and and being part of and so it was a cold case. And then years later, twenty years later, I can't remember. Uh, they, they think they found the guy that did it. And uh, I remember having conversations before this happened where they found out, before they found out who it was, they were always wondering why, you know, why did this happen? Uh, The person entered the court proceedings and and justice process and and still at the end of the whole process, they weren't really ever given the chance to ask the question why. And, uh, And so it's a very disconnected way to to experience justice, uh, it takes justice out of the victim's hands and really places it into the court system, uh, into civic society. And, and so that's, I think that speaks to the need for this type of, you know, relational approach to justice and yeah. Yeah. I, I, hear what you're saying and wonder about that. I wonder about how misguided it is that justice is viewed as something that happens to the assailant, but that isn't um, healing for the victim. And you think that's the one who really has a debt that needs to be somehow addressed, whether it's even just by having some clarity on what happened and why. That's really thought provoking. Um, when we talk about caricatures, the irony, I think, for me is that when we identify that we have caricatures for different cultures or different, like for the police even, or for, you know, whatever, whatever group of people, when we start to make moves to think differently, it doesn't feel peaceful inside. You know, it's disruptive. Or when we start to see that people view us through the lens of some kind of a caricature, we could be defensive. And so when we talk about systemic violence or systemic oppression, I think is is just as helpful. And we start to imagine movements toward um, being peacemakers in the midst of that. Is there like a season of, of deconstruction that's just havoc that is inevitable or maybe even necessary to move toward peace like is peace peaceful that's a great question i i think that um i think it's really disruptive because you're changing your thought patterns and you're intervening in a way that it had always been the way you thought and you're changing it with something else 
and and so those influences can really fall either way. I mean, it could make you could become radicalized, you know, uh, in a really violent way, or you could or you could be invited into or radicalized into into other ways. And so, the act of of intervening regular thought patterns, your life is is by definition, I would say, disruptive, and and that takes work i think and support and imagination and patience and curiosity to work through that type of change don't know if i've been thinking about those things turning 40 (laughs) you know like i think those aren't necessarily questions just reserved for uh, for formation in terms of peace building or restorative justice or that but i think any kind of change is a very disruptive thing and can be can be difficult. Yeah, I, I, I find that to be a helpful kind of precursor to anybody wanting to move toward peace is not picturing it as something where less issues arise, but actually like embracing complexity creates an atmosphere or maybe a foundation where those conversations can even happen. I, I think so. And I think the thing that really I find even personally challenging is that it comes at a cost. I think for if we're looking at ways to embed a justice-like approach, a restorative justice approach to constructing and creating spaces for people to be together, the people with the most power in that space have the most power, uh, also have to acknowledge, um, well, it's, it's interesting to hear myself talk because uh, I'm not necessarily sold that power is a limited resource, uh, but I do think that people use power to oppress others so that they can maintain, you know, higher standing or, or whatever in different facets of, of society or even in personal interpersonal relationships. But I think the act of creating a space where people can feel empowered, uh, that type of change can be big time threatening to the folks who are usually used to having all of the control and to give some of those things up is a very, very difficult prospect for some. And, uh, and it's, it's a provocative space to, to think about being in there uh, like that. So that's a, I think the disruption is, is definitely there for sure. I love that kind of two of the key terms I was picking up on are like being creative and letting imagination kind of help in the restorative or yeah that process I think that's surprising to me because um, because they didn't teach me that actually no maybe they did teach me that in my conflict management class (laughs) maybe I hate to admit but I, I maybe I, I'm just into these stories that you're sharing. Is there like a an example that comes up where you're like, I didn't see that outcome gonna come out of what the situation was, but that's an example of creativity and imagination at its finest, bringing restoration. Yeah, I mean, I think imagination is a thing that is disruptive for this type of work. Uh, or, or any kind of work, really. And uh, because it's the thing that changes how we do things. Uh, and, and so, f- like, I, I do some brainstorming work, facilitation, you know, that's all part and parcel for the, for the job. And so uh, when you do brainstorming and you're looking to generate ideas, you want to create points of tension because the points of tension are the things that really drive the conversation into spaces that you don't expect. And the way that you create those points of tension, uh, you don't, you're not forcing people to fist fight or, you know, whatever, but, but the best brainstorming sessions I've ever been a part of and facilitated or even been a part of were the ones where there was more diversity represented in the space because you create spaces that do not reflect normative power structures in society. And so you've created this table where everybody has a say. Everybody has something to contribute. And it's not one person over another, it's everybody with each other crafting something together. And, and that takes time even to get to a point where you can say, 
I acknowledge you as a full human being. It sounds crazy, but I, I think that we overlook that our caricatures that maybe we have systematized for through media or portrayals or talk in our families or, you know, the way that we even animate our faith, you know, it, it creates these pictures of or caricatures of people. And, and I think the work of, of bringing those people together and deconstructing those stereotypes and creating a space where everybody can feel safe and feel empowered to be fully themselves. Those are the spaces where you can generate the group, the coolest ideas uh, that are beyond the normative patterns of thought and action. So I'm, I like kind of going to extreme sometimes when you're learning a new concept and I'm thinking about like, if everybody in the room, we have wide diversity, but the, uh, the consensus is dysfunctional um, and like we need a revolution, you know? Um, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference of when, and who gets to say if it's going the right direction or not? And like, when do you need a revolution and who's, the prime revolutionary in that setup? I, I think it's a good question because like we, and so in my master's degree work, uh, you learn about being an interventionalist. And so you, you can do these conflict analysis or you can meet with people and, and understand local context. And, and, and you can look at, you know, does this, does this make sense for us to come in and intervene in this dysfunction? What is the thing that we bring that can offer relief or spur creativity or build relationships in a way that is helpful for to, to work through that dysfunction? Which I can imagine, like, how humbling is that, you know, to say, like, we are assessing your situation and despite the diversity around the table, we think all of us around this table need something from the outside because yeah well and I, I think a couple things are really important one uh, like you don't you for me anyway uh, you don't just go in and say hey Chris Luncheon is here <laughs> restorative justice guy is gonna save the day right I don't think that's it's certainly not the approach uh, our work the work that we've crafted for, for our community dialogues has been really slow and intentional. And so you meet with people and you understand needs and hopes and dreams. Uh, you know, what do people want to see in a community that they share, that they may not have an easy time sharing? And then when you see all of those things and you've talked to all these people, you can ask the question, does this make sense for us to do our thing? Does it make sense to bring a restorative justice lens into this setting where, and so for, for us in our work in Abbotsford with the restorative dialogue work, the answer has been yes, because there has been significant disconnection between people. And the act of our work is to bring people together in a way that is safe. And you throw out words like trauma-informed, right? Uh, because people have experienced some really difficult things and you need to acknowledge that in a space for it to be diverse. Um, equity is another word that gets thrown around a lot, but equity is basically from my side, of, from, and uh, there would be other probably better and more robust definitions of equity, but, but equity for me has been asking the question, well, how do we do this for everybody? You know, if we're gonna do a meeting somewhere, does everybody have access to get here uh, or not? I mean, that's a very bit, does everybody understand what we're doing? If not, well, how do we do that? Uh, do, you know, five of us are getting paid to be here, one of us is not. Is that appropriate, right? So those are the, like the questions of equity and, and, and I think the, the idea of intervening is really leaning into the complexity of the situation and working with people who are part of the 
the conflict or the community and figuring out does it make sense for us to be here with you in this because when Arja or I enter into a dialogue space I become part of it you know we're not just this entity outside but we we come in and and then we're there we're building those relationships we, we try to foster the space as best we can but but at the end of the day we have become part of that space so if you were given kind of um well i'm going to give you a carte blanche sure as they say on um a way that you could encourage uh like a spiritual family or a church community or a discipleship movement or something connected to faith to be more aware of some of their blind spots as it relates to this topic are there blind spots that leap to mind that you think the church at large if you could like chapter headings in your book on like a way that a church could move forward in this kind of thing is there anything that leaps out at you blind spots uh, I was sitting with a friend of mine who I feel like a grandpa starting with you know answering your question with a story like how old am I man like uh, well you said you're pr approaching 40 I am so. 40 so I yeah I gotta take my nap soon you know but um the uh so f for one of my class assignments I had to meet with a guy who'd been doing um I chose to, didn't have to. I, I chose to interview somebody who'd been doing restorative justice work for a while in the Fraser Valley. And I asked him a similar question, actually, uh, just about how do you navigate the complexity of the human experience with all the diversity, all the experiences of oppression, all the experience of injustice, how do you just, nav how do you just acknowledge it even? Uh, you know, and how do you just even say that you've got blind spots, right? Because nobody sees it all. And, you know, this is a guy who's been doing this work for a while, an expert in the field, and he just said, take the perspective of the more you know, the more you don't know. So I think the point of of his story was... You just never know, don't know, you know, uh, it's, it's a pretty, I don't know if that's a great way to land it, but like ignorance is not enough, I think, and ignorance actually hurts people. So like we can't just be like, oh, I just didn't know that you were oppressed for so long, or I didn't know that life was so hard for you, or, you know, and we can't, on the flip side, we can't assume that we're experts in everything either. And so in there, I think, is humility and the posture of you know, curiosity and being open to the mystery of the human experience, because us as individuals, we would just never fully know what other people are experiencing and you know if you if you apply that to your question from earlier i think you very basically just need to acknowledge you have blind spots and really really talk to people who are different than you who have a different experience than you who see the world in a different way than you than your community and resisting the impulse of fear of the unknown. Uh, and I think embracing the mystery of that other person and their expression and experience of humanity. And when you get into that space, I think that's when the magic happens. You know, imagine going into a room and of somebody who's drastically different than you different experience, different physicality, whatever. It's a different type of interaction when you embrace postures of curiosity and openness and leaning into the mystery of who that person is rather than prescribing 
how they should act towards you or how you should act towards them. And that, I think that's really a gift of the faith community, you know. I see that when I read the stories about Jesus. I mean, that's it, right? Parties with priests and prostitutes and flipping tables and, you know, all those things. You know, those Jesus stories are awesome, right? In the sense of, you know, really embracing the humanity of other people and saying, yes, I love you no matter what. And that just, man, if we could all just be Jesus, you know, like, come on, that's not that hard, is it? It is. It's really hard, but. I think that's a caricature. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. A complex one, I think, hopefully. Well, I just want to thank you, Chris, for taking time to sit in Copper Hall here with us um, at a distance and to open up uh, your world to us and paint in our imagination a disruptive pathway forward to peace. That's good, man. That's a T-shirt, I think. We'll make that. We should have that for sure. It'll be sent next week. <laughs> Thank you. This has Maybe been not. this has been great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Chris Lenshin for his time and expertise. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. Join us again in two weeks when the re-podcast dives further into the topic of peacemaking with folks from our own community. This has been episode 13 of the re-podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.